Welcome back to Polite Politics. No Niederhofer here with Jenny Tayer. And back by popular demand, Dan Rosenfield and Dan Karish. Welcome, everybody. Such an interesting week that was, and another interesting week that is still to come. Holy week, guys. We have Easter and Passover both in the same week. But first of all, let's just start it off. Dan Karish, how are you, sir? Doing great. I'm happy to be back. Happy to be talking with you guys again. This past week was really a uh, great week. My favorite whiskey distillery reopened to start making hand sanitizer, Whiskey Acres in DeKalb, Illinois. So they, uh, I'm glad to see that you know it's a great group of people back up and working and helping out the community. So it's it was a good week. Also great to see that we have you know different parts of the community, different businesses innovating. That is kind of the American innovation that we talked about last week kind of working and trying to help out their communities, their neighbors. Great shout out there for uh, for that distillery over there in uh, in Illinois. Okay, Dan Rosenfield, over to you. How are you, sir? Things are good. Um, I remembered I had to take a shower. Uh, it was a couple days, um, but, but glad uh, that that came naturally to me. Um, but uh, things are good and uh, excited to uh, be chatting with uh, Noah, Jenny, and the other Dan this afternoon. Jenny, how are you? How are things in Houston? Things are good. Keeping my distance from people and staying home and trying to find new ways to not be bored. And, you know, I think we're all kind of doing the same thing. It's a weird time. Certainly understandable. I think we're all kind of grasping for for different things, trying different things out here. I know some of you have watched Tiger King, Dan Rosenfield and Dan Karish. I believe y'all have have gotten into the Tiger King craze. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely, and I'm uh, excited. I, I read, and it has not been confirmed, that there will be an eighth episode coming out on Netflix in the coming week or two, so I'm excited to see uh, if uh, if that comes to fruition. Uh, so I, I have not yet uh, joined the Tiger King craze. I, I've, I feel like I've seen enough on it on social media, on Twitter, and all of those other things where it doesn't sound like there are a lot of good people in this show, and uh, I I was told that OJ no I saw that OJ has weighed in, and anytime OJ Simpson decides to weigh in on a, on a subject, they usually will be like, "That's not for me." Yeah, I mean, no. With all due respect, I I think you really shouldn't be commenting on Tiger King unless you've experienced Tiger King. So has to be seen to be believed. I I think you're I think you're definitely right there, Dan Rosenfield. I I would just say that. It doesn't seem to be my uh, my cup of tea. Let's get into the big story here as we continue. COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic, still obviously will continue to be the big story here. There is no national shelter-in-place order, although the president uh, did come out and say that the CDC, uh, together, they've talked about having uh, cloth masks uh, that is a recommendation that the CDC has proposed to basically say that everybody, when they leave the home, should wear a cloth mask. So I want to just kind of go around and first of all talk about the fact that we don't have a national shelter-in-place order. Do you feel that we should have one? There are several states, many of them, that have not yet put in official shelter-in-place orders. So we'll go around. Dan Karras, we'll start with you. Should we have a national shelter-in-place order? What do you think? It's a hard question. That's the right question. You know, we see, as we talked about last week, that every community is slightly different. When you look at some of the more rural locales, you're looking at North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, and I believe one Wyoming or Montana, which do not have uh, stay-at-home orders currently. There are there aren't as many grocery stores. There aren't as many things with easily accessible within a couple of miles from your home. So having a stay-at-home order 
isn't necessarily as effective, I think, in that case. But, but what it boils down to is what can you do to best uh, flatten the curve? What can you do best to help your community, to help yourself to stay healthy for your friends and your family? And having a stay-at-home, stay shelter-in-place order, I think, accomplishes that. Dan Rosenfield, we talked about having kind of a uniform policy and how that really helps. Uh, you know, the cloth mask recommendation, we saw that the president will not, he says, it's just a recommendation. I probably won't do it. We've seen uh, Joe Biden, who is the front runner now for the Democratic nomination, he says that he will be using a cloth mask. Do you believe that most Americans will kind of take this to heart? Obviously, a tough decision to know, you know, that, that they'll do this. But the CDC kind of, again, as Dan Karras was was kind of alluding to, taking steps to help everybody be able to take measures to prevent this spread. What do you think of the recommendation by the CDC to have these cloth masks? And do you think that a lot of people will go ahead and, and pay attention to it? We've seen that some people don't pay attention to the, to the shelter-in-place orders. So do you think they're going to pay attention to this? Yeah, first off, I think it's uh, really important that everyone has a domestic friend like Dan Karish, who probably has a sewing machine and enough fabric uh, to sew cloth masks for everyone in his network. Uh, so that's really important. Uh, and then the second thing, um, you know, it, it's really hard to say. I was talking with my uh, friends in South Dakota right now, and it's really hard for those communities out there to um, understand the need to wear cloth masks, to uh, participate in social distancing when they just had their one case, you know, in the entire uh, west side of the state, what was it, a, a week or so ago. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think you're seeing more and more people uh, as this as an, is, is an avenue for people to come together, for people to make masks for each other, for people to, uh, for everyone to kind of participate in the shared uh, helping and shared experience of, of uh, solving this this crisis um, so as of right now it's not that cool to wear a mask but give it a week um, and it I think will be like the social expectation that if you're not wearing a mask you're um, you know you're threatening the life and and the health of those around you yeah and I think there are ways to help have people you know whether it's the president or people around them or, or the hashtag you know kind of you know we'll use the air quotes influencers but you know, to make it look cool or fashionable, and there are ways I think for people to be able to do that, which will help uh, spread the message that this is definitely the the right thing to do. You mentioned South Dakota. One of my two uh, uplifting stories of the week actually has to do with South Dakota. So we are gonna uh, change it up a little bit. Normally we keep them both to the end, but I'm gonna use one of those stories here. There was a sixth grader who emailed her math professor for help, and. Uh, the teacher lived up the street from her and actually walked down the street, had a whiteboard, and through kind of this plexiglass while maintaining social distancing, worked out the math problems uh, with her. They were working on, I believe, algebraic equations and functions. So I do not believe, I mean, I, I can't remember doing that in sixth grade. I think I was just working on, you know, solve for X. But lovely to see that, you know, this is a teacher who is going above and beyond to help students who, for some, are much more visual learners and, and really kind of going above and beyond the call during these times to help students learn. And meanwhile, all can, you know, all doing this under social distancing. So, uh, Jenny, we'll move that over to you. First off, your reaction to that story about the teachers, you know, are you hearing about things over in, in Houston and other stories across the country where you know, people are, are going above and beyond like this for, for either students or, or in other walks of life. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have my best friend is a teacher and uh, she sends me her YouTube videos and she's reading to her students every day. And and um, it's really, you know, it's a weird time to see that. Um, you know, I also, people I work with, you know, they have kids and um, they're having to, you know, Zoom um, into class and it's, it's, it's a different time. It's weird. Um, I am concerned about like the quality of education, you know, it changes things. There's a lot you have to adjust to. I think specifically, um, my concern is like university students, like a lot of students now having to take pass fail grades, um, having to do classes online that are not really adaptable for online learning, but um, on the other hand, it has been really um, cool to see how some teachers, especially elementary education, uh, middle school, high school, um, have found creative ways to teach. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting exactly to Jenny's point. We talked right before the podcast about this potential for an education gap that's going to rise with students not being in the classroom environment. And even, you know, Noah, as you mentioned, it's Holy Week. Is there going to be some sort of religious education gap as well? I think one of the things that we've been seeing are these more creative and experiential ways of getting students and getting families into the educational environment. You know, my cousins are out in Silver Spring, Maryland with their three kids. They're having them research online uh, different countries and do a presentation on countries or doing a presentation on, I think, dinosaurs was what they did one week. So it's these other ways of, you know, you're not just sitting in the classroom learning your multiplication tables or your addition and your subtraction. It's learning how to be a part of a more global research network. It's, it's learning how to research in the 21st century, which is different than how we all grew up with a library and how we all grew up with uh, pen and paper. I think, unfortunately, this is also going to bring up, um, you know, how we look at the, uh, like, if we really need these physical institutions of, of uh, universities and schools, um, you know, I, uh, the finest institution in the Southeastern Conference, Texas A&M University, um, just announced that they are, are making their uh, entire, you know, new student orientations virtual. Um, and, you know, all these professors are learning to merge classes. So, you know, already these 300 person classes are now being, um, not at AM, but, but other schools that I'm seeing are now being managed by, you know, hundreds of students are, are being managed by, by one professor. So, unfortunately, I think it's really going to open up what's the purpose of these physical institutions and how much they're allocated financially uh, from federal and state programs. I mentioned one of the things related to colleges and the SEC, Dan, as you talk about, is when you look at what brings in most of the funding for athletic programs and for a lot of these other programs that universities can do, it's the athletics program. Most specifically, it's the football program. We're seeing that there are no football programs, there are no athletic programs right now. So this is going to lead us to a very concerning uh, funding challenge for a lot of state universities in the coming academic years, where you're seeing that these schools are not only losing revenue that they're getting from academics, but as a lot of uh, foreign students are coming to the United States for education is where we're seeing, you know, a lot of Chinese students leaving American universities. How is that going to affect the funding capacity for our education system? Education has always been one of those areas that hasn't always gotten the highest priority for funding. And Dan Karras, you're absolutely right in terms of the current business model of college athletics, which is something we could do an entire podcast on entirely, as well as we could, you know, spend an entire podcast just picking apart 
Dan Rosenfield's uh, argument that Texas A&M is the premier institution in the, in the Southeastern Conference, uh, obviously. You know, but we, we appreciate your passion for the Texas A&M Aggies, Dan Rosenfield. Jenny, I want to bring it back to you where we're talking about Holy Week. And so for Passover Seders, obviously for, for Easter, this is a time where a lot of Good Friday, these are a time where a lot of, this is a time of congregation, of prayer, of thoughtfulness. And there are some states that have exemptions for religion and religious gatherings. You know, do you think that this is something that maybe the president should look at saying, you know what, I know that there is a desire and urge to be with your communities in person, to be there all together for these holidays, but I urge you to stay home or do kind of either drive-in services or different kinds of things like that for this moment because this is a potential to keep, as as we've all said, to continue to spread the disease. What do you think about this? You know, this is obviously prayer, and, and this specific week gives a lot of hope to people, but this is a week unlike anything we've we've ever seen before. It's a lot of unknown. Um, we don't really know um, how much of um, an impact social distancing is having on the numbers. We really don't um, have a lot of answers to these questions. Even going back to your point about masks, um, you know, early on uh, we were told that if we were part of the general population and we were, you know, either. Um, you know, if we didn't show symptoms, then wearing a mask wasn't really helpful. Um, and so now there's been a change of tune with that. And um, going to uh, the religious services and should it be um, drive-in, should it be um, in person, how do you handle that? Um, I think there's a lot of factors involved. Um, one is where is where is your church, where is your synagogue? Um, is it in a place that's a hot spot? You know, I would say probably if it's in New York, it's a no-go. Um, but, you know, there are some areas that are not really hit hard by this. Um, and I think it just, it depends. I don't personally know. It feels like I don't, it, I don't really know what, um, what, what a lot of these models for social distancing mean and if they're really working because, you know, the deadline for, for the um, social distancing was originally um, Easter Sunday, which is coming up, and that's been pushed. What do you mean by the deadline for, for social distancing? So earlier it was President Trump had said that um, he hoped that we would get back to normal and we would, you know, lift restrictions on, um, on social distancing and gathering um, by... Easter Sunday. But that was that was a very early kind of I mean that that decision we pretty much knew as soon as he made it was without kind of basis in in the facts. You know, we we knew it was going to get pushed back even when he said it. It just was very kind of an aspirational man. Wouldn't it be great to kind of have the the churches packed for Easter Sunday? We didn't think that that was going to stick. Well, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I think some people were encouraged by that because Everyone is looking for a light at the end of the tunnel, especially um, if you're a church leader, if you're a business owner. I mean, we need that kind of hope um, because it, it, we're in a very dark place, you know, economically, 
Um, Health-wise, you know, if you're a doctor, you're very concerned. I know a lot of doctors here in Houston um, are concerned about um, how overwhelmed the system could be. Um, But like I said, there's just a lot of unknowns. So, um, you know, there's one model we're looking at. Um, We don't know, you know, is that the right model for how we're going about things? You know, different states are showing different um, almost different curves of their own. I actually heard that um, New York is declining in daily deaths now. Um, So it seems like what they're doing, what they've implemented may be working. Um, We'll see. Um, But again, I think it's kind of a case-by-case basis. The report that I saw was that New York's peak is going to hit this coming week. So we're looking forward, obviously, hopefully, to them being on the downswing as as we get closer to this unfortunately it means that deaths are going to get more and more because of of the peak and they do need a lot of obviously personal protective equipment and ventilators and a lot of other things Uh, new york has has really been struggling through this but it's also been nice to see new yorkers come together and and really uh, try to to work through this very very difficult time together i think there's no doubt that social distancing is both preventing the spread of coronavirus and saving lives through that. That's what we've seen. People like Dr. Fauci, who who is definitely advocated for a nationwide shelter uh, in place policy. I think the reason that they would do that is is because it is effective. But Jenny, I, I think you're you're certainly right. There's no way to know exactly how many, but I think that's more of a fault of the testing is we just don't know how many people have it. So it's hard to say. But I, I would imagine definitely that, that it is something that has been incredibly helpful that they did in, in different places to, to stop the spread. Right. And if I could just add to that, I think it, it does have to do with testing. Um, Lisa Booth, who's a columnist for um, The Hill and is a Fox News contributor, she wrote a piece today for The Hill, um, actually yesterday, about random sampling of the population um, and how that could be really effective um, because this disease uh, shows itself in many different ways. In some ways, it doesn't show itself at all. Um, so that could help with a lot of the unknowns. Asymptomatic carriers, I think, are, are one of the, the people that those are, as you said, the group that's unknown that can continue to spread this disease. I, I want to bring some attention to my home state of Georgia, where the governor, Brian Kemp, said that he recently learned last week, uh, just found out, I believe, that asymptomatic uh, carriers uh, can go ahead and, and pass the coronavirus on to other people, which, you know, Dan Karish, I'll, I'll, I'll put this to you. Uh, are you buying what Governor Brian Kemp is selling? That seems very hard to believe when you have the CDC based in Georgia, Governor uh, Larry Hogan, who chairs the, uh, the Governor's Association. They're giving updates all the time. You see the president's briefings. It seems very hard to believe that any governor at this point, especially with all of the resources that they have available to them, would not have this kind of information or would quote unquote just learn about it. What do you think? I find it very hard to believe that Governor Kemp doesn't have this information already, given exactly as you say, that he has the CDC located prominently in his state. But, you know, in the information age that we live in today, his staffers are receiving these updates from 
the news media from most likely the president's task force on the coronavirus constantly, multiple times a day. It's hard to believe that any of these governors who are on these conference calls with the president and his advisors every day, it's hard to believe that they wouldn't all be on the same page. And if it's true, if for some reason he actually didn't know this information, I think it speaks to the communication breakdown that we're seeing that's starting from the top down. We're seeing to this we're seeing this fracturing between the different aspects of the local governments and the national government. And I think in order for the response to be truly effective and efficient, all the governors, the mayors, the president, all of the health officials and advisors need to have a uniform and aligned approach. Dan Rosenfield, I have a question for you in terms of trust in government and public officials. I think it was something that I want to say Henry Kissinger wrote in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. He had talked about how we are at the the edge of a new epic where basically people are going to decide whether or not they have faith in those elected to lead them through these kinds of crises. Obviously, Congress, the approval ratings for Congress have been low for a long, long, long time, and it seems that people's faith in their at least nationally elected leaders is much lower than it is in their state elected leaders where we talked about last week. State and local officials really seem to have risen to the occasion here. But Dan Rosenfield, as far as the nation's confidence in the president and Congress to get through this crisis all in one piece to save the economy and to do all of these other things, do you think that the American people will, when we get past this, have a different view of Congress and the presidency if they do, in fact, not manage to get us through this crisis in one piece? Yeah, I think right now there is no other option. You know, there are lots of companies innovating and producing technologies that'll that are doing with samplings and and uh, testing. But as of right now, those in power um, have the right sources of, sources of information um, to do what's best in their mind for our country. Um, so I'd love to say, okay, we actually need to look at this one think tank or those right now on the coronavirus. Uh, Coronavirus Task Force, um, the CDC, despite them being pretty quiet lately, uh, have the best information. Um, I, I I think it's so hard to say what our view of Congress and what our view of the president and the role of the president is going to be um, in in the coming months. Um, for so long, it's been there should always be a new program instituted because of national epidemic or a national emergency. Um, and then it's, you know, a decade later that we really see uh, what the impact of the agency or what the impact of the program is. You know, the, after 9-11, TSA, Department of Homeland Security, now almost 20 years after it was created, are we really seeing the impact, how it's helped? And that was all because of, you know, what George W. Bush with the Congress back in 2001 and 2002 put together. Dan Rosenfield is exactly on point with that, that sometimes it takes time for the members of Congress to develop exactly what the response should be and whether it's instituting a new agency after we saw after 9-11, how that's going to manifest. But, you know, over the past week or so, we've seen following the passage of the CARES Act, both Democrats and Republicans are conceding that the bill has serious flaws, including just a number of unclear provisions that may even force small businesses to close, which is the antithesis of what they really wanted in the CARES Act. Now what we're seeing 
are these policymakers calling for fixes to come by some yet to be determined, some unknown executive branch regulation? And now we're seeing uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi calling, I think, yesterday or saying yesterday that by the end of April, there's probably going to be a fourth congressional stimulus action. So this kind of forces the question, at least in my mind, we've seen President Trump heavily scrutinized for his response. Why are we not seeing the same scrutiny of the legislative branch? Why aren't we seeing the same scrutiny for him? for our members of Congress with all of these inefficiencies, with all of this inability to really act quickly and act um, in a concise manner that's really necessary and not to throw out a dangerous word, but is this really bordering on legislative malpractice? So I think it's interesting that you mentioned malpractice because as I was going to mention, I think the American people have certainly soured on Congress with the fact that it took so long to get some of these bills passed as we saw that you know, when the Senate had uh, their bill and the House had their bill, it didn't get signed right away. Eventually it did, but it took some time. Now, you know, I'm not going to say that the two or three days made a huge change. It certainly did in the markets. But, but overall, we're going to see now that the execution of this, I think uh, Se- uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said that checks will start to go out, I think, in the next couple of weeks. So it'll take a little time for this money to get into people's hands. Small Business Administration and uh, some of the other, I think J.P. Morgan Chase said that they still don't have guidance on who to necessarily give to or how much. And so they're having problems in terms of the distribution of loans. My thinking is that this is going to shine a spotlight on the lack of, as you said, competency, the gridlock and issues of, of partisanship. And then also just a general competency problem on the part of the government to help the American people, especially when they need it most. Jenny, do you think there's going to be any kind of backlash to to kind of what Dan Karish's point was? Do you think there's going to be some kind of backlash against the legislative branch in terms of their elective officials and, and maybe how they've been perceived to either have been helping or failing them? You know, it's important to get um, a new bill ready um, and I think to also focus on getting cash in Americans' hands, Um, I do think some lawmakers are distracted. Um, For instance, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi this week announced the formation of a House Select Committee on the Coronavirus Crisis. Um, She's very focused on, um, you know, the aftermath of this. Um, The same thing coming from um, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff. Um, with forming a 9-11 style commission. Um, Of course, it's important to, um, you know, audit the process here eventually. Say, okay, did we handle government funds? Did we handle taxpayer dollars, essentially, um, in in a meaningful way? Um, This is a huge issue. It's going to definitely have impacts on the economy um, for it looks like a, a long time to come. It could be, um, you know, it could be years. And I think that that's, you know, something that needs to be focused on later. I think there's a lot of political motivation behind um, putting together some kind of audit right now on the, on the funding. Um, and I think People are more concerned about keeping their businesses afloat. People are more concerned about paying their rent, paying their insurance, their student loans, um, than they are about, 
you know, forming some committee um, to look at the federal government's response to this. It's definitely possible that they might not be concerned with it. I think government accountability, I don't think there's ever a bad time for government accountability and at least a review of actions to see where we could have done better in the aftermath and and how we failed and how to prepare for next time. And I don't think that's a bad thing to do now. The sooner we start to find out where we went wrong is the best way that we can then retrace our steps. I I did want to also add that uh, the Pelosi committee uh, that she created is going to be bipartisan, I believe. Uh, so, so at least that that will be done in, in a bipartisan fashion. I believe Jim Clyburn will be the one heading up that uh, that committee. Want to move on to some uplifting stories uh, of the week. We had uh, the Hall of Fame uh, for the NBA. This was supposed to be Final Four uh, weekend in time. Unfortunately, with we saw with with all of the coronavirus pandemic, that was uh, the tournament was canceled. Uh, but this is the time where they induct people into the uh, National Basketball Hall of Fame, and so uh, Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan, Kobe Bryant is the kind of the big name that that is in there. Tamika Catchings, Eddie Sutton, and Kim Mulkey, the coach at uh, Baylor. Want to now move into. Final thoughts of the week. Dan Karish, we will start with you. Uh, final thoughts on the week that was and uh, the week to come here as we, we uh, embark on Holy Week. I think something that we've seen over the past week, and it'll be very interesting to follow as it develops, is data collection. We're seeing there's the these new apps that allow you to input what are your symptoms, how are you feeling, and it'll give you a red light, yellow light, green light on if you're safe to go outside of your home. We saw Google is uh, tracking your movements to, through Google Maps or through your phone to see how well are people in different areas really staying home or are they moving about more. This raises a whole lot of questions about data collection, data privacy. And I think that as we uh, think forward as the coronavirus pandemic hopefully slows down in the coming weeks, um, will a lot of these uh, data privacy champions in Congress, for example, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Ro Khanna, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, are they going to become vocal on the response that these big data collecting companies, um, the actions that they undertook during this time? Very, very interesting. Dan Rosenfield, over to you. Being that this is Holy Week, I think this is uh, really just going to kind of tear at another um, very emotional part of our site. You know, we, we kind of figured out all right, this is how we deal with food and our basic necessities. And, um, you know, then we dealt with education. Okay, this is how we're going to teach classes virtually. And this is how we're going to engage students virtually. Um, as a as a Sunday school teacher, I just had my first sun- virtual Sunday school class this morning. Um, and the kids were teaching me how to use Zoom. Felt very high tech. Um, and now it's, it's faith and, and this very personal part of, of our community. Um, and I think it's going to be it's really going to question um, what are the important parts of our community and what are the important parts of faith um, that are going to be a challenge during this time. So um, exciting. I have stocked up. I went to Giant a couple days ago and stocked up on all my Pakusha for Passover goods. Uh, so I have enough matzah to last for, uh, to last if coronavirus hopefully won't um, last until August. So I'll be just living off matzah for many, many months. Certainly want to wish a Hag Sameach to everyone uh, celebrating Passover, as I know that we are. Uh, Passover starts Wednesday uh, at sundown, Wednesday night. And then we obviously, again, Good Friday on uh, on this coming Friday, as well as Easter Sunday. Um, I think you're, you're absolutely right, Dan Rosenfield. I mean, I think the, people talk about kind of chicken soup for the soul. I know that that for yeah, popular book series, but 
this time, especially for religion, is something that's going to really be very important for people. And I, I hope that it gives them hope, even if they can't all be there together as a congregation, whether it's in a, a church or a synagogue. Jenny, thoughts on the week that was and the week to come? Well, there's a lot um, of promising data out there, and I'm, you know, focusing on that and trying to keep my hope up, and I hope people are doing the same. I'm looking forward to actually following this week more of the liberty aspect of the coronavirus, because now um, we're seeing a lot of um, questions coming up about data collection um, from Google specifically. Um, how are we going to track this? Because that's how um, models, successful models um, like we saw in South Korea worked. Um, I think also one uh, piece that people are not looking at is HIPAA, um, which involves um, information, medical information about a patient. There's been actual um, restrictions on HIPAA lifted. So um, looking at that, I think it's it's important to see how coronavirus has changed kind of the foundational principles of our country. Is it changing that or is this something that we we need to adjust to ensure the health and safety of our country? So I'm really interested in looking at that, but I'm also interested in focusing on family time and having a great Passover and trying to keep my mind off of the craziness of living in a pandemic. Great points from all of you. And, you know, this is, is such an we continue to live through history. It's one of the, the most gratifying and interesting and thrilling parts for me about why I, I got into journalism is to live and document everything that goes on in our world. And, and someday, we'll, you know, people will read about this and learn from this. And, and hopefully we will be able to emerge from this, obviously, uh, while, while bruised and battered, I think ultimately long term, we, we will be OK because we're resilient, not only as, as people, but as a country as well. And so uh, that's that's something I'm looking forward to, obviously, looking far, far, far down the road, but also interested to see what happens with Wisconsin. There is an actual there is a Democratic primary going on here in Wisconsin next week, and Joe Biden is definitely looking like he's going to win if they go ahead and cast these votes, which they probably won't have polls, you know, with a lot of people. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see how they handle that. And if Bernie Sanders loses, will he continue to try to stay in the race or will he drop out? It'd be very interesting to see. Might have something new to talk about uh, next week as regards to the Democratic primary for president. Thank you all for listening. For Jenny Tayer. Dan Rosenfield, Dan Karish, and myself, Noah Niederhofer. Thank you all for listening to Polite Politics. We'll catch you next time.